Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we profile and highlight the lessons learned from founders, entrepreneurs, and investors shaping and impacting the startup ecosystem of Asia. For today's episode, episode six, we recorded a few weeks back. Unfortunately, we will have some interesting background noise. We were recording in an office during a thunderstorm, so you may hear some light rain and thunder intermittently. For today's episode, I interview my friend of five years or so, Kevin Tan, who is currently the executive director of Europe Car Malaysia in Thailand, and possibly for all other future Europe Car franchises that open up in Asia, which is very likely in the coming years. He is de facto CEO for all intents and purposes and makes the calls. Europe Car in Malaysia and Thailand had some interesting traction pre-COVID. Since Kevin took over, the team was able to grow supply over three times in the past one or two years, almost doing an IPO on the Bangkok exchange and garnering the interest from PE firms like JP Morgan for full buyouts. However, as many businesses that are tied to travel, these stories are on hold for now. I do hope to cover them for our next session with Kevin. This episode, however, covers two important topics. The first being about family businesses and the second about how Kevin was able to wrestle control of Europe car from his family business to run it by himself with his dynamic team. Initially, we set the scene by discussing some of Kevin's early experiences while studying in the US. The context is important to give more color to the topic we will talk about later on. We discuss what it's like going to UC Berkeley, one of the top ranked schools in the US, what it's like living right next to the largest tech hub in the world, San Francisco, and a foreigner's view of the San Francisco vibe during the financial crisis and during the VC boom we saw in the past few decades. Later on, some of the topics we talk about with the family business are the unique framework his family adopted to avoid conflict, how to navigate the employee and family member dynamic, and finding a champion to bring about innovation for family businesses and succession planning. Under the topic of Europe car, we get into the future of travel and car rentals in Asia and how COVID impacted the industry and how to attract and retain talent for traditional businesses. Lastly, we talk about how to use technology to improve traditional businesses and when it is a good time to pivot. Here's another episode you do not want to miss. Let's dive right in. All right, Kevin, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. Hi, Alex. Yes, yeah. thank you for coming out this weekend. I know you're very busy. No worries. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Kevin, you studied at UC Berkeley in the U.S., right? Yes. So uh, UC Berkeley is ranked top 20 schools in America. Um, how would you define your experience at going to UC Berkeley? Um, I think it was pretty eye-opening. So it was, it was quite a different experience for me. Um, I did middle school in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. Then I did high school in London. Uh, then I went on to do university in the U.S. So I think... You, when, when you go to the US, you realize that it's a whole different culture. Yeah. Um, and I think not only from an educational standpoint, but from a social standpoint as well. Mm -hmm. So in both Malaysia and in the, in the UK, when I went to school, it was very much with my own social circle. But mm -hmm. when I went to US, um, so Berkeley is a public school. Yeah. And be just because of that, you get to see different people from different walks of life. You get to hear their stories, uh, you get to see their viewpoints, and you just get a, a whole different uh, outlook on life. Mm -hmm. yeah. And London was also, I mean, you were in London or UK, somewhere, somewhere so else? So I was uh, half an hour outside London okay. uh, in, uh, in a state called, in a county called Kent. Uh, so I studied at Seven Oaks School. Mm. Yeah. Um, how would you contrast the, the UK experience to the American experience? Um, okay, I would say that the UK is much more about 
uh, academic learning, um, learning from a textbook, um, you know, studying social life. But in the US, I realized that everything was geared more towards work, mm. uh, towards being an adult, what you're going to do after university, as opposed to just reading from a book. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot more case studies, we did a lot more practical um, examinations, things like that, mm. where it kind of prepares you for what comes next. And would you say you're closer to your friends from the UK, US, or Malaysia? Um, I think now I'm closer to my friends from the US. Okay. Um, I think just by virtue of the fact that uh, recency bias. So mm-hmm. I got closer to my friends in the US, and the distance, the time difference meant that it was difficult to keep in touch mm-hmm. with my, my previous friends. Um, also, I think as, as we go through life, we, our, our priorities will change, yeah. our wish list will change. And I just have I just found that I had more in common with my friends from the US. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and these are guys from San Francisco or all around the US, or um, so it started as my uni mates. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, I, I'm pretty close to a few of my uni mates, but it kind of expanded to other people who. So I think that the thing is in Malaysia there aren't that many uh, US graduates. Yeah, there are a lot more UK and Australian graduates. So just because of that. Um, the U.S. graduates tend to know each other or yep. tend to gather among each other. And that, that's how I met you, Alex. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's more the U.S. connection that, that brought us together. Okay. Yeah. And um, how, how was the San Francisco experience? Or is it maybe Berkeley not the same? Um, okay, I would say Berkeley is pretty unique because it is a, it's, it's a campus town. Yeah. So everything revolves around the university. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of us, we yeah, we would go to SF, but it wouldn't be a common occurrence. Yeah. Um, for most of my my time there, I pretty much spent it in and around Berkeley itself. Okay. And how long does it take to get to San Francisco? Uh, it's about half an hour drive, uh, maybe about forty minutes by public transport. Okay, so it's right across the bridge, though, right? Yes. Okay. So, uh, but have you spent a significant amount of time in San Francisco, or? Uh, not really. So, mm. okay, my roommate was from uh, SF City. Yeah. So. In my first couple of years, I, I used to go down there to, to his place to have dinner with his family, things like that. But uh, overall, I would say that you know, we didn't explore SF didn't explore as it. much okay. as we should have. Um, a lot of people these days, you know, you hear people talking about San Francisco. They say it's like a really shitty place now, right? There's a huge gap of disparity between the rich and the poor. There's homelessness everywhere. Uh, the streets smell like pissed. Is this your experience of it or what would you say? Um, Okay, I think, so when I first went to the US, I've, I went in 2008. Yeah. So that was at the height of the global financial crisis. Mm. So pretty much everywhere smelled like piss. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. I, I mean, you could see uh, the, the mood was bad, the economy was bad, a lot of people were struggling. Um, since then, I think we had a huge tech boom yeah. and the disparity is pretty clear in SF. So you have neighborhoods which are really poor, like Tenderloin. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side of that, if you go down to San Jose or, or other places, you realize that the wealth gap is huge. Yeah. Um, there are really nice areas and there are really poor areas. Mm-hmm. And there's not much of a mix between the two. Uh, mm-hmm. There's not much mobility in the social classes. Yeah. Um, I also found that a lot of the wealth is, is concentrated among people who, who move to SF. You know, to work for the tech companies mm. as opposed to the actual locals themselves. Mm-hmm. So actually, you have a very big 
contrasting experience and it probably puts a lot of animosity between locals and people kind of who moved in probably right yeah I, I think when i first went there everyone was pretty friendly yeah by the time i left um you could see a lot more tension by uh, 2012 yeah but by 2012 um you could see more tension in the sense that people so sf used to be really casual yeah really easy going it used to be the the you know, the epitome of California. Hippie, right? hippie yeah, life. Hippie, like, hippie life, yeah, right? Yeah, Everyone's yeah. free and easy. Yeah. But by the time I left, you could start to see that people were much more um, concerned about money, concerned mm. about wealth, uh, social class, mm. and uh, all of these things were, were it's becoming a lot more capitalist mm -hmm. as opposed to the old school hippie, hippie, hippie culture. Is that, uh, I guess that didn't really appeal to you or? Um, Okay, so when I first went to SF, it was a huge culture shock. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I mean, compared to Malaysia or any part of Asia where, you know, our parents uh, always, they, they, they reinforce the idea that, you know, you got to do well in life. You, you yeah, got to be financially course. stable in life. Right? Yeah, you can't yeah. just be a bum. Then when you go to SF, you realize that everybody's a bum or the wish list <laughs> is to be a bum. Yeah, but... Uh, by the time I left, then you could see a lot of uh, immigrants, um, both from other parts of the U.S. as well as from other countries, and it be the culture became a lot more, I would say, maybe Asianized. Um, mm. ev everyone, uh, you know, is they talk about work mm -hmm. as opposed to enjoying life, things like that. Mm. Yeah. So, what would you say you love most about the U.S.? Um, I think in the U.S. Things are just so easy. Uh, I, I don't think people understand that the US, it's a developed country, but everything is surprisingly affordable. Mm -hmm. Everything is surprisingly simple. The quality of life is very high. Yes, yeah. I would say the quality of life is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, so say if you live in the suburbs, uh, say you're making $3,000 a month, your, your wife or husband is making $3,000, it's about $6,000 a month, right? But you probably could hoard, afford a pretty big home, two yes. cars, and, yes. a, and a big property. Yes. Now, if you contrast it to Malaysia, if you're both making 3000 ringgit oh, a month, yeah, you, can't even, you can't even live anywhere far, you know, close Correct. to the city at yes. all. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I, think that, I think you're right. A lot of people don't realize that if you want to have a good normal life, yeah. it's actually surprisingly quite good in America to do yeah. that. I mean, one example was always like Starbucks, mm. right? In Malaysia, a cup of Starbucks is what, uh, 12, 15 ringgit. Yeah. In the US, it's three or four dollars. Yeah. So after converting, it's the same price. Yeah. But obviously in the US, you earn in US dollars. Of course, of course. So it's like spending three or four ringgit on a cup of coffee. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Would you say that value proposition is still the same these days or is it changing? Um, I would say when I first went there, uh, I, okay, to be fair, when I first went there, the exchange rate was one to three, uh, yeah. one US dollar to three ringgit. So things were very, very affordable. Yeah. Um, and I'd actually just come from the UK <laughs> where it was, you know, one pound is seven ringgit. Yeah. So everything just became naturally cheaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the quality of things in the US is much higher mm -hmm. uh, and things are just more accessible. Mm -hmm. So over time, I would say that the exchange rate plays a part, but things did get more expensive. Um, but I'm not sure whether it is a long-term systemic issue or it's because it was a recovery from the financial crisis mm. uh, that coupled with the exchange rate. Yeah. So what would you say you maybe don't like or something that really annoys you about the US? Um, I would say the, the only thing that I find annoying about the US is the, is the need to be politically correct. That went very extreme yes. these days, right? It yes. kept going and going and going. Correct. Yeah. So it, it got to a point that um, 
you know you have to it's difficult to be yourself yeah right in, in the US you have to watch what you say you have to yeah. everyone's overly sensitive mm. um, and I think sometimes it's just ridiculous yeah um, Nobody can take a joke. Yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, contrast that to Asia. What yeah. was, I mean, what, what do you experience here? So, uh, okay, Malaysia is multiracial, right? So, <laughs> yeah. um, everyone makes racist jokes. But everyone <laughs> knows it's a joke. <laughs> you, know? you can get away with a lot more. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, here there are tons of stereotypes, but yeah. I think people just don't really. It doesn't take get it to the heart. Yeah. 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 Um, and in fact, you know, some people embrace it. They they even joke about themselves. Yeah. Um, we have a much more open culture, and mm. that allows us to be more comfortable in our own skin. Being yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, on the flip side, you can say that that means there's a lot more endemic racism. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's systemic. You you can't get rid of it. But I think sometimes in life, you just you just gotta. It's part of it. Right? Yeah, you, you yeah. just got to enjoy yourself a bit. Yeah, yeah. Can't can't let it get to you. And then, Correct. Yeah. Um, so, do you think students should still aspire to study to places like the US these days, or maybe they don't need school? Or what's your take on this? Um, no, I would say, okay. I've looked at the statistics. You need school, um, okay. Especially now, okay. Maybe in our parents' generation, not everybody was getting a, de- a degree, but now a degree is pretty much the norm. Um, yeah. If you look at the data. If you have a degree compared to a high school diploma, you earn maybe about five or six times more on average. Mm-hmm. A high school diploma compared to a complete dropout, oh, the numbers are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I would say education is a must. Um, I would recommend anyone who is able to to go and study in the US. Yeah. Just because I think it sets you up so much uh, better for your working life. Mm. Um, so one example is that in so I did finance, um, and one of our classes was about personal financial management. Yeah. So it was a class where they even taught you how to file your taxes. Oh, really? Wow, yeah. I missed so, that completely. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it came down to like, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, it's not really applicable to me because I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't file taxes in the US, but it is really uh, relevant to real life. It's very, yes, it's very painful if you don't know how. <laughs> Correct, yeah. 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 So yeah. when I talk to my friends who graduated from the UK, uh, they're talking about, you know, macroeconomics, they're talking about supply and demand, but when they start working, you know, nobody knows how to file taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, so it's back to basics, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you basically get a broader kind of education and yes. uh, more specific things that maybe are practical. Yeah. Okay. Uh, did you always know you were coming back to Malaysia? Um, I think so. Uh, I think 80% of me knew that I would come back to Malaysia. So uh, on the one hand, I, I, ha- I have a family business. So it would be that was the part of this resistance for me to just join the business um, and see what I can do from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flip side is always that the US uh, is a really big market, but it's where a lot of smart people congregate. Mm-hmm. So for you to succeed in the US is much harder. Yes. But of course, if you succeed in the US, you become huge. Yeah. So I just thought that you know, if I come back to Malaysia and I find a way to succeed here, it wouldn't. It would be much easier. Um, you may not be able to do as much, but you can still do plenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess you you had these thoughts uh, very early on, and I guess that's why Silicon Valley never appealed to you, and you never applied to stay. Or uh, okay, so if we if we look a little bit further back, uh, when I was applying to university, Silicon Valley wasn't it, it wasn't the thing that that brought me to California. Mm. Um, so when I was applying from, from the UK, I applied to New York uh, because my sister was there and I applied to California because the weather was good. Uh, mm. I mean, the UK, it's raining every day, it's dark. Yeah. So I 
I'm the kind of person where if the if the weather isn't great, I just don't have the mood to mm. to get out of bed to do anything. Um, so when I, I applied to New York and to um, SF, basically, uh, but before I made the decision, I actually paid a visit to New York uh, and saw one of my friends there, yeah. and he took me around. Mm-hmm. And okay, to be fair, I went in November, December. So I mean. Yeah, from New Jersey, New York. You know the weather is yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. It's, it's brutal I mean, for winter. Yeah. It's like minus something degrees. Yeah. And it, in New York City, with the buildings, the wind chill, it's like <laughs> a freaking tunnel. Yeah. And yeah, so f- after that, I was just like, you know, I don't think I can survive yeah. in the cold. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's how I ended up in California. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so let's uh, move on. So uh, another fun fact about Kevin. Um, I think in the past few years, only you found out you were second cousins with Anthony Tan, the founder of Grab. Yeah. How does that happen that you don't know you have this kind of like relationship? Uh, so I, I think um, it, it's because we are, number one, we are distant cousins. So we never got together over like family events mm. or things like that. Um, we we kind of knew each other. Knew of like, each other. Knew yeah. of each other, yeah, but we didn't yeah. know, know each, each other. other. Correct, yeah, so correct. I didn't even know what he looked like, kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah. after grab and everything, you know, the whole thing came up. Of course, up and then, then you everyone, find out. Yeah, then we, we kind of put the you know connect the two. And yeah. Then, yeah. Okay, and then currently you are executive director at Europar. Yes. Right, which is one of the top five rental companies, car car rental companies in the world. Right. So yeah. if anyone who's traveled uh, by plane and they needed a car, you would definitely see Europe Car as one of the options among by Hertz, Avis, something like this, right? Yes. Um, Europe Car operates in 140 countries. They make about 3 billion euro revenue a year. Yep. They're a listed company on the CAC 60, which is the largest mid-sized companies of France, right? Yes. So if you're making 3 billion euros a year, that only makes you mid-sized in, in uh, Europe, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. So yeah. uh, you get an idea for scale. And previously, you worked as a manager at Sicily, yes. right? Which is... Um, both of these companies are actually under the family business, right? Um, so yes and no. Um, so my history is when I first came back, I joined the family business uh, where we we are a family business that may be a little bit more unique because yeah. we are more of a family framework rather mm. than a family business. So uh, the, the whole family, including my uncles, would provide a framework so that everyone can run their own business and succeed. Hmm. So I had an uncle who would run you know, a car dealership. I had an uncle who would run um, you know, a, a travel agency. I had an uncle who would run an auto parts manufacturer. And each family member is free to sort of run their own business within the overall framework. Yeah. Um, but it is not one cohesive business like a conglomerate correct it's it's like a a, maybe a mini conglomerate holdings Uh, yes so the 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 family just provides support to each other Mm. so when one person needs help or needs uh anything like you know maybe legal services recommendations contacts they can tap onto the rest of the family's uh, network or resources Mm. but each member of the or each of my uncles would basically run their own business. Yeah. Yeah. So when I first came back, uh, yeah, I, I joined Sisley, which uh, is a lingerie retailer, um, and I took care of the, the factory operations. Yeah. Um, I mean, me somehow being the guy, the, the general assumption was, you know, you should start in the factory. Yeah. Uh, you don't get to work with the models, you get to work with you know, the foreign workers, all the <laughs> Banglas and all the Nepalese. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, but I think it was a good experience uh, getting back to a factory floor, seeing how things are actually made, manufacturing, mm. back to the old school type of business. Mm-hmm. Then about three years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, run Eurocar in mm-hmm. uh, Bangkok. Yeah. So we had 
gone, we had expanded the car rental business into Bangkok, but it wasn't doing well. It was losing money um, for one reason or another. And that is why uh, the, the family was just you know, thinking about what we should do for the business, you know, to evaluate strategically, should we close it down? Should we expand it? Should we continue to run it as is? Um, so they sent me and a couple other people uh, to Bangkok to evaluate the business. And basically, we figured out that um, the business has a lot of potential, but maybe because of lack of oversight or lack of management from mm -hmm. KL, uh, that is why it wasn't doing well. So, that, but that was your evaluation, right? Yes, that was basically our half-ass evaluation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, it wasn't like a, a whole family thing or it was, just, it was only you were sent to look at it, right? Correct. So yeah. it was only me and a couple of colleagues, uh, no, fa no other family mm -hmm. members who were sent to look at it. And from there, uh, we actually decided that, you know, we think we can turn it around. Mm. So I, I, I spoke to uh, the, the rest of my family, uh, my uncles, my dad, to say that, you know, give us a chance. Mm. I mean, the whole thing is losing money anyway. Yeah. You know, it's not like we can do much worse. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> true, true. So, from there, they, they actually gave us the opportunity uh, to, to run it. So I, me and a couple of my colleagues, uh, we actually went there as a team and we, we took over the management. Mm. Um, from there, so somehow or another, by hook or by crook, we, we managed to break even. Mm. And after that, we actually thought that there is a lot of potential in the business. But for one reason or another, um, the family wasn't, wasn't super keen to invest in it. Um, car rental by nature is a very asset heavy business yeah. um, you know one car is maybe you know 60 80,000 ringgit so a hundred cars is what eight million you know, a thousand cars 80 million and the investment required was huge yeah yeah um, so for a lot of the family I don't know maybe maybe they don't trust me <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe they think I'm gonna burn their money but one thing led to another and the whole concept was look, uh, we can scale up this business, or we thought we can scale up this business, but we would need investment. Mm. Um, since the family was not keen to, to invest in this sector, um, so that's how we ended up basically uh, buying the business out from the family. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now it is no longer part of the, the extended family okay. group. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's what you mean by um, you're kind of working for the family and not, right? Yes. But initially you came back to Malaysia, you started in Sicily, yes. and then you were kind of seconded to Europe car, and then eventually the whole story of you taking over. Yes. Right? So I, before we, I, I know I want to get a lot deeper into that, but before we sure. do that, I would like to talk more about the family business. Um, is there like a, the family, is it the family business name? Is it public or is it private? No, so it's, it's a private company uh, called uh, Wawasan TKH. What yeah. is it? Royal? Uh, Wawasan TKH. Oh, Wawasan TKH. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I guess to give an idea for scale, right? So the Malaysia has this uh, organiz government organization called the SME. Uh, yes. Yeah, right? So they have a definition, right? Yes. So I think um, a small company is 15 million ringgit to 50 million ringgit in revenue. Yes. And then... Uh, Sorry, that's medium. 15 to 50 is medium. And then anything below 15 million ringgit annually is small. Yes. So I'm guessing it's a large enterprise, right? Uh, yeah, it, it's larger than that. Um, but because it's a conglomeration of multiple the, medium-sized businesses. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So then that's why you put it all together. That's a large business. Yes. Right? Um, how many businesses are under the portfolio? I have no idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> maybe... Um, I would say maybe a, there are maybe about five or six okay. uh, different businesses, um, but over time some are closed down, some are open. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Roughly, how many employees across five six businesses? 
Um, I don't know. Maybe about five, six hundred. Mm. I think it'd be it's, and it's a very unique framework because I think most family businesses in Malaysia will be have like this, you know, the original founder who controls yes. everything, right? Yes. And then uh, maybe some family members, a brother or uncle, they kind of like, you know, work together from, yes. and they kind of split it and then, uh, and eventually the children does, t- does succession planning to take over, right? But yes. So where, where did, for your family business, right, has a, it's more like a framework, like you said. Yes. How, how did that come about and who, um, whose idea to have the vision to do this? I, I don't think it was a planned um, situation. It kind of just developed that way. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't think it's a secret that most family businesses would have disputes. Oh, yeah, right? of course. Uh, I mean, personal and professional lives end up mixing and that, that never ends well. Yeah. So I think it was just inertia. And after a while, it became a case that, you know, I don't bother you, you don't bother me, mm, right? Okay. So in order for that to happen, each one would need to have his own distinct um, operation, his own distinct business. And that way, I'm not dependent on you and neither are you dependent on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why our family business isn't, isn't a sector-specific operation yeah. where, for example, one member of family does manufacturing, one does sales, one does marketing. Mm. It's not like that. It's like one does mining, one does plastics, one does yeah. car dealerships, one does travel. Yeah. You know, it's just a huge yeah. variety of uh, industries. Do you think this is a framework maybe other family businesses can apply to make succession planning more sustainable? Or because, you know, I think the study is quite famous where people know that after second generation, yes. if you lose like 70%, by the third, you lose all of it, right? Yes. So, um, I, I don't know if there's a right and a wrong answer, uh, yeah. mainly because even in these kind of business, when, first of all, there's very little synergy when you start to have uh, very disparate sectors yeah um, and even after that there'll be some businesses that do better mm. and some businesses that naturally do worse yeah um, so I I'm not sure if it solves the whole succession and the whole avoiding disputes mm. uh, you may be able to avoid disputes operationally on a day-to-day basis but in the larger scheme of things when you're talking about um, you know, shareholding structures, when you're talking about corporate structures, when are talking about capital allocation, then I think the same old problem surface. Mm. Yeah. So essentially, kind of different smell, but same problems eventually yes. down the line. Yes. Right? And how, how old is the business then? Uh, or businesses combined, I guess. I, I think so. The, the business probably is about 20 years old. Okay. Uh, so around 2002, 2003. Okay. Yeah. So does that mean growing up, that means you were probably seeing in the process of the wealth being created then, right? Um, okay, so yes and no. Um, so our family business is a bit unique because um, when I was a kid, um, so my, my, we have a, a, another so-called family business where it was started by my granddad uh, mm. and my granduncle. So one generation earlier. Yeah. But uh, because of a family dispute, that's how... It split. Yes, it's, it, okay. it's split. Uh, the family split. And it ended up that, um, you know, myself and family came out and started their own business in 2002, 2003. And in order to get a head start, they basically ended up acquiring certain businesses. Mm, um, okay. So it wasn't really a start from scratch. Uh, some, some of the businesses were started from scratch, but uh, some were acquired. Mm-hmm. So 
I didn't really get to see the wealth creation in, in the traditional sense, like okay. from zero. Yeah. But uh, you could still see the businesses being scaled up from maybe small enterprises to medium and finally to maybe a bit larger than a medium-sized yeah. enterprise. How did that shape your thinking growing up, being exposed to these businesses? and? Um, I, I think it, it was great to have this exposure. Yeah. Um, it, it, was, it, it meant that I got to see things that a lot of other people wouldn't have, right? Um, family business means that we're entitled to walk in, to, to explore. We get to talk to uh, the, the members of our family who are in the business. So even before I graduated, a few of my cousins were in the business and I had a chance to talk to them to mm. see um, what the dynamic looked like, mm. what the job scope looked like, what the experience was, was like. Um, and it, it was unique, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not sure if, if because of this, I did not explore working outside and whether uh, yes. that was yeah. something that I missed totally. Yeah, because so, I mean, a lot of my friends also have family businesses. Yeah. I think it's just natural in these circles. Uh, if you do business or startups, you're going to rub, rub shoulders with people who have family businesses, right? And, yeah. Um, so a lot of them actually avoid it at first. Yes. You know, they, they will go work for a tech startup. Yes. But interestingly enough, around this age, when you're entering the 30s, I see a lot of them actually going back to the family businesses yes. in the end. Yes. So, yeah, I guess maybe, you know, it's more like they need to exert their own identity, but then they realize, as what you realized early on, it's yeah. least, least path uh, to resistance and, you know, you could make something faster for yourself, right? Correct. So, uh, okay, I think I, I had the same mindset, right? Um, so, even when I was in university, I did internships. Yeah. And... But the problem is when you do an internship in a big company or multinational, you don't learn anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. mean, you're just a cog in the wheel. There's, there's no way that they would invite you into strategy meetings. Yes. There's yeah. no way that you would really learn things that are so material that it would it would help you. Um, so yeah. I, I have a cousin who who's been working in banking for a long time, um, and he's re he's a great banker, but. You know, we always have the conversation that if you ever wanted to come out and start his own business, it's not so simple, right? Mm. Because he's working for a multinational bank. Yeah. And unless you can start your own multinational bank, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the skill set is just totally different. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so, I, I don't know. Just, yeah, I mean, also, he, he'll probably have some very corporate behavior and habits of being risk averse, think, yes. thinking like a banker, which yes. in order to like do kind of what you did, you know, break yep. away an own business requires yep. a lot of different Correct. A lot of thinking, a lot of skills. Yes. Yeah. And there's a, there's a different element of risk. I think once you work outside for a large company, the risk factor is very low. Yeah. Um, you work, you get your salary every month. Um, mm. Five o'clock, you knock off, go for a beer. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. And I guess it was also kind of different uh, for your family business because uh, you guys don't initially joining the family business, you don't have equity in this, right? Correct. It's not like you're set for life. Correct. Yes. In fact, it's quite existential. You don't even know if you're going to get anything at the end of the day, Correct. right? Yes. So I think a lot of people don't realize. They think, oh, if you have a family business, yeah, you're set for life. You have like this bank account. You could keep charging money, but it's not true, right? That's not true. Yeah. yeah. Or at least not for me. Yeah. At least for your family. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, so then you have two other siblings. You have an older sister and a younger sister. Yep. Um, eventually, they all also go into the family business. Yes. How did you guys kind of split off what to do and where? And um, so I think part of it was based on interest and based on... Um, you know, our, our abilities. So, you know, some of us are more geared towards marketing. Some of us are more geared towards finance or operations. Yeah. Uh, but I think overall, we somewhat took the same mindset as the previous generation, yeah. which is that each one of us steps into a different business mm -hmm. uh, just to avoid any arguments. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. I, I think when you grow up in a family, there's hierarchy. 
um, you know, the, the older siblings tend to take advantage of the younger siblings, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or tend to bully the younger siblings. Yeah. But when it gets to a workplace, you know, the professionalism must be there. Of course. And yes, yeah. sometimes it's just difficult to separate the two. Mm-hmm. Is there animosity between... Um, because you're, you're no matter what, you're part of the family, it's a family business, right? Yeah. So you coming in and all these employees see you, what's that relationship like and how do you navigate it? Um, so, yeah, I think every employee, they do their homework. They, they know who you are. Yeah. You know, let's not kid ourselves that we can walk in and pretend like we're yeah. just anyone else. Um, I think it's, it's just a function of uh, explaining to them that you, know, you really are there to work with them. Yeah. I think I did make a mistake um, you know, we graduate from you know a good university. We come back from the U.S. and we're like, you know, we read the textbook. So, <laughs> you know, based on the textbook, I I know what to do. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, everyone here is just you know a, a decade behind, a generation behind in their in their yeah. thinking, in their mindset, in their yeah. strategy. But uh, after a year or two, I, I realized that you know you you can't expect the system or the organization to bend to you. Correct. Um, you got to pay your dues to some extent. Uh, to be fair, you have not earned um, mm. the status of being able to dictate. Yeah. Right? You have. You were not the one to build the wealth. You were not the one to build the business. Yeah. And you can't just, you know, brush these people off uh, and say that hey, you know, their 10, 20 years of experience counts for counts for nothing. Correct. Um, yeah. I think when I when I first came back, I did make the mistake of trying to force down that hey, you know, in the US, this is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, all the, the tech startups, you know, that's what they're doing. But yeah. after a, a, a bit of time, you realize that you, you got to learn to work with them. Mm-hmm. Um, they are your tools, they are your resources. And once you can get their trust, yeah. then you can probably get, uh, you know, some, you can probably give input into strategy and mm-hmm. see things bear fruit. Mm-hmm. So I guess the expectation is it's, it's not a small startup. It's already, there's a framework and you kind of have to, it's an exercise of leadership, right? Yes. You have to learn how to work with people, understand them. Yes. Um, so then how does really one make an impact eventually then and innovate? Because, right, so a lot of family businesses hold a lot of the wealth, large enterprises, yes. right? So they are making a fair amount of money. Yep. And, you know, if, and there are in these embedded old industries that could use technology to really unlock more value. Yes. So how you know so part part of it's like you said you got to work with the players you got to understand them yes but at the same time you know if it's too slow someone else is going to take the opportunity agreed right yes. so how, how do you go about maybe innovation in the family business um so i, I think uh for me i was actually parked under uh out so we, we had this guy in the organization who was basically like a manufacturing guru um or so-called he was the expert in uh, kaizen continuous improvement mm-hmm. manufacturing operations so I was lucky enough that he took me on as kind of like a mentee mm. and we had a mentor-mentee relationship where he would bring me along um, and this was a guy that used to work throughout all the different manufacturing operations we had in the group mm. and because of our mentor-mentee relationship he would bring me along or he would at least teach me not just about uh, you know lingerie production about garment production but about you know plastics production about mining mm. about uh, car component manufacturing car mm. assembly so from there, we, we built that, that repertoire and he was pretty senior. So a lot of times when it came to strategy, we would discuss things, I will give my input, but it will always be communicated through him. Mm. Yeah. That way, it's not a case where I'm stepping on people's toes. Yeah. I don't have the position nor the seniority to yeah. do so, but um, I would usually, you know, he, he would always ask for my opinion and 
I think I was lucky enough that that this was a guy that was willing to to take the time to, yeah. or spend the time to to work with me to help me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is, you know, one one way to innovate is you got to find a champion. Yes. It, it, sounds, it sounds very corporate, actually. Yes. Right? Yes. No, exactly. Really, yes. So I guess it's very contrasting to different types of entrepreneurship where, you know, it's just, there's, there's no hierarchy, you know, you just go do things, mm. experiment, you know, fail and try again and everyone's on the same page, right? Correct. But, but essentially this tactic would be, you know, if you have a family business, you can innovate, but yeah. you know, you got to take different kind of steps and yes. uh, one way, like you're saying, is find a champion, uh, get him to trust you, yeah. uh, listen to him and eventually, hopefully uh, things start to change. Yes. Um, I guess that's also a little bit contrasting to your younger sister, right? Yes. She just recently joined the family business, but yes. I heard she's making a lot of changes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how come she can do that, but you couldn't? <laughs> um, no, okay. So I think my younger sister, uh, she's the youngest child, right? Yeah. So maybe to a certain extent, she's been used to getting her way. Mm. Uh, we have two different characters or mindsets. Um, and I guess in her case, the, the so-called champion that she found was my dad. Oh, um, that's the best champion. Exactly, yeah, okay. right? Yeah, so okay. if that's the case, then um, yeah. again, it's the separation of personal versus professional. Yes. Um, whether my dad would say no to his youngest child, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So because of that, she, she came to a business, you know, all guns are blazing, mm. with a bazooka ready to go. Yeah. Um, but in my case, when I first started to try to do that, you know, things wouldn't move. Mm, you you okay. would make suggestions, everyone would give you face, they'll listen, yeah. but no one would Nothing act would on anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, a good point. So how do you go about convincing the original entrepreneur or the older generation to listen to your ideas then? Uh, I'm not sure if there is one way, but I think the mistake that a lot of us make is that we go in telling them what to do. Mm. Um, Yes, we may have great ideas. We may have, you know, gone to a great school where we were taught everything from the latest textbooks. But these guys, they, they've built something. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, they've done it over 10, 20 years, sure. But we, we, you can't just assume that everything they've learned is useless. Correct. Um, yeah. You can't just assume that you know better than them. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest factor is trust. Mm. Uh, for, for things to move, the people who make the decisions have to trust your opinions. Yeah. And trust takes time. It yeah. takes time. It takes experience. You have to show small wins. Right? Yes. It, it compounds over time. And they yes. have to see it in action. Yes. And if you, you know, it's a brash young child who goes around throwing a tantrum, they're not going to trust you. Right? Exactly. So, yes. And I guess that's just the hubris of, hubris of youth, right? Yes. You know, you're young, you don't know better. And yes. So that's a very good experience, I guess, you had yeah. for your early career. Uh, so then eventually this gets to you, like you told the story earlier about Europe car, yeah. right? Um, your solution was, so I guess for your solution to implement change was actually just to take the business away. Yeah. Right? Um, I, I realized, you know, family disputes or family issues, um, they, they will come. Mm-hmm. Um, if I look at it one way, it's a function of I'm the wrong generation. Mm. Um, my, my parents' generation, they are, my, my dad's 60 something getting close to 70 yeah he's looking to retire yeah you know whereas i'm looking to start life i'm not looking to expand the business mm-hmm. um, to kickstart everything mm-hmm. you know to gain financial independence so we are just at two different points in our life so for me to expect that all my uncles are ready to be gung-ho and you know throw in their life savings to to grow my ideas maybe that is naive yeah um i at the same time, uh, we always trust ourselves more than others. Of course. So yeah. I don't, 
I, I think it, it's, it's quite understandable that they would trust themselves to run it, but they may not trust me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. given the history, you know, I've always been, uh, they've, they've known me since I was a kid. Yeah. They've known all the times I fucked up. They've known all <laughs> the times I've done stupid yeah. shit, right? Yeah, yeah. So because of that, uh, maybe it's hard for them to, to see me as, as an adult. Yes, as an adult, as someone that they can trust with yeah. their money, their yeah. savings, their fortune, yeah. things like that. So I guess it's a double-edged sword. Uh, the youth mistakes, the older generation experience, but uh, the older generation also has a cognitive bias of you being that little boy still probably, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, the, the question and the problem to solve uh, in family business as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur I guess, yes. right, is to bridge that gap. Yes. Right? Um, I guess, like as you said, so it, your, your father's at a different stage, you're a different stage, so that's why you decide to break away, right? Yes. Uh, before we move on to that then, you know, because like you said, your father's looking to retire. Yeah. Um, how has your family approached succession planning? Is it still very loose and uncertain or is there something like steps finally being put out? <laughs> I, I think this is an issue with all um, yeah. well, eight Chinese families. Yeah. Nobody wants to talk about retirement because it's a slippery slope. After yeah. retirement, what do you talk about? Mm-hmm. Death. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we, we have a term called pantang, which mm. is, you know, the fear of talking about death, mm. the fear of, um, it's impolite mm-hmm. to start talking about all of these things. So nobody wants to bring it up. Um, my dad has been talking about not so much about retirement but about semi-retirement mm. about wanting to go on holiday wanting to enjoy his life <laughs> yeah. wanting to you know enjoy the fruits of his labor yeah, he earned it right <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly um but because we never sat down to chart out a clear um retirement plan or succession plan or handover plan uh it's tough so yeah. uh and at the same time it's not always logical for one generation to hand down to the next yeah because True. there's a huge gap yeah. Um, so a lot of times, like even for my dad, um, a lot of the businesses are, or are usually run by professionals. Yeah. You know, that is the in-between option. Uh, True. So that there's continuity. Correct. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just that when it came to Eurocar, we did not have. Oh uh, well, uh, we we had a professional CEO, but he clearly wasn't doing a good job. Yeah. So that that was a unique scenario, mm-hmm. uh, and when we decided to to buy the business out that was kind of a watershed moment that uh, it just served as a natural demarcation of my dad stepping back from at Mm -hmm. least from the car rental business and handing it over to me to to run Mm -hmm. it yeah and essentially the the, I guess the structure is is your father like uh, passively involved yes so of course uh, financially he's the one that helped helped, uh, not not just helped you know that made it happen yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) so um I mean, for, for that, I, I am extremely grateful, extremely thankful that even if my uncles uh, did not back me, he did. Yeah. Um, so, you know. Which means you built the trust eventually. Yes. Right? Yes. And how, how did you know when looking at the business for Europe Car, right? Like, like you said, so Malaysia, it was probably just running, probably breaking even or yes. like, it's not at least losing money, but the, you invested in Bangkok, right? Yes. And that was just losing money. So yes. essentially, you're, in, you're in, uh, in red, right? Or, yes. Yeah. Um, what was the insight that you knew that this was going to work out? Um, okay, so for me, ever since I was a kid, I've been a bit of a math geek. Yeah. Yeah. So everything to me has been about numbers, mm. and uh, even when it comes to business, I I tend to trust numbers. Um, you know, some people say that maybe it's a bit too much that I'm I'm missing the personal touch. You know, the I, I'm missing the the qualitative aspect mm. as opposed to the quantitative aspect. But when when we went into a business, I looked at the numbers and I figured out, or I figured that the existing management, they were probably too far at the other end of the spectrum, mm. whereby they, they listen to you know 
old adages, old sayings, mm. uh, the old way of doing things. So traditional, yeah. tried and true, without actually understanding the numbers. Yeah. Um, so when we looked at it, I thought, hey, you know, if, if we did a few things differently, we could actually make it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, so like basically being very data driven, you, yes. you dug into the numbers. Yes. Um, I guess you talked to all the people who probably flew to Bangkok. Mm. Right, and then uh, I guess you did some modeling. You figured out that this is something that could work. Yeah. Um, and what, what is the history of Europe Car in Asia then? So it's, it's essentially Europe Car works as a franchise. Yes. yes. And then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so your family bought the franchise what more than ten years ago, or? So in Malaysia, we bought the franchise in two thousand and seven. Mm-hmm. In Thailand, we bought the franchise in twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Thailand came much later. In between, we yeah. did try Singapore, but we we failed. But essentially, your, your family business w- used to hold the full rights for the whole region, right? No. So it was always country by country. Oh, it's country by yeah. country. Okay. Um, it's just that because in Asia Pacific, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, these are the largest tourism markets. Mm. So just by virtue of that, Eurocar used to push us to take on more countries, okay. become a regional franchise yeah. operator. Yeah. And I guess... Uh, they have 140 countries now. Yeah. So I guess Asia is probably one of the smaller regions then? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which, so, so yeah. go ahead. Um, Asia, we are always, you know, maybe a decade or two behind. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the, that, but that means uh, if you look at how the population growth and middle class is growing, yeah. I think 60% of the middle class will be coming from Asia in the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. Which means this is probably a huge, huge uh, area for growth, right? Cause, yes. Because once people become more middle class, wealth spreads, people, what's the first thing they do? Travel, yes. right? Leisure. They want more yes. free time. And I guess part of that would be renting cars, right? Yes. Um, and how big is the car rental market for Asia? At the moment, it is surprisingly very small. Yeah. Um, if you compare it to the to places like the US, we are tiny. And yeah. the main reason for that is not that we don't have people traveling, it's a culture issue. Mm. So our parents, when they travel, they tend to book a package. Um, they, they, when they arrive in, say, Romania, there'll be a bus waiting for them, mm. a tour guide, things like that. Uh, it's just that with our generation, we start to have a lot of technological tools. Yeah. Um, Google Maps allows you to drive without the risk of getting lost. Mm-hmm. Um, we have got TripAdvisor, we've got Agoda, you know, that allows us to, to plan our own holidays, mm-hmm. to customize and book it ourselves. Yeah. So we're seeing a big shift towards uh, independent travel, yeah. uh, where we, we do it ourselves. Whereas I think like in the US, it's been around for ages. You know, yeah. everyone just gets in their RV or in their car and drives to the Poconos or to some, yeah. you know, forest it's, reserve. It's the infrastructure yeah. too, right? America yes. did not develop public transportation Correct. internationally. Yes. So I mean, or cross state, right? Yes. And um, I guess in Asia, yeah, it's it's like you said, the trends are behind. But yes. I think we talked about this earlier too that um, you know, ever since COVID, yeah. fundamentally travel is going to change. Yes. Right. And I, and I guess I asked you, what, what did you think about? Uh, what the changes would be and how it would affect the car rental business? Um, so for my own personal opinion is that it would actually be good for car rental. Um, yes, overall, the volume of travel will come down. It will take some time to recover. Yeah. But of the amount that does recover, I think nobody would want to sit in a bus with 40 other people that they yeah. don't know all coughing away. Yeah. So a lot of people would end up renting a car where they just sit their family. Yeah. At the same time, um, I don't think people would visit big cities, crowded areas. 
they would want to go to uh, you know state parks they would want to go to resorts and yeah. all of these are not accessible unless you have a car have a car yeah so essentially your business uh, what you guys are betting on is that it's going to be well positioned when the travel recovery happens yes. right and fundamentally people will be shifting their behaviors how they travel yes yeah. um, and how many cars do you guys currently own so currently we run about 3,000 over cars um, so when, when I took over uh, Thailand in uh, three years ago, we had about 100 odd. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, we just scaled it up. And that's um, currently in how many countries? In two countries. Two countries. So between Thailand and Malaysia. Thailand, we run about 2,000 over. Uh, mm -hmm. Malaysia, we run about 1,000 over cars. And I remember before the, the lockdown and the virus, you guys were probably looking at a few more countries to open up, right? Yes. Yeah. So... Um, Travel by nature, you know, we, you enjoy huge network effects. Yes. You know, people from Malaysia, we, we love to go to Korea. We love to go to Taiwan. Yeah. So if we have an operation in Taiwan or Korea, uh, it's easy for us to market the product to Malaysians who are traveling there and mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you go about managing so many assets, right? That's really heavy. It's very, you know, contrasting to like tech startups who have no heavy assets. Right? Yes. Um, what was the, what's the process like? What's the experience? Um, so I think the, the logic behind uh, going to an asset-heavy business was to be a bit more contrarian. Yeah. Um, the, the, the trend now is to be asset-light. Yeah. But that means that there's less competition in asset-heavy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we thought it would be easier for us to compete. Uh, we, we know we're not that talented. We're not the best. Mm -hmm. So since you're not the best, you should go for a place that has less com competition. Yeah. Um, in terms of managing it, uh, it, it, this is something where I guess we have an advantage. Yeah. So when, when I look back, the advantages that we have uh, is that in Malaysia or and to a certain extent in Thailand, we have uh, a brand name. Um, and not, the brand is not Eurocar. It's, it's like the family name. Yeah. So just through that, we are able to work with bankers. Uh, we're able to raise debt. Uh, we're able to raise equity. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of people are much more comfortable investing in us yeah. just by virtue of us having a, a very long track record of operating uh, asset-heavy yeah. businesses in these countries. And so contrasting to like typical tech startups, the yeah. way you guys financed the company was mostly through debt, yes. loans, which yes. is very traditional, right? Yes. And I guess like you said, that was comp your competitive advantage. Yes. And, and it makes sense to probably take advantage of it, right? Yes. Okay. Um, how do you go about marketing these services then? Like uh, I know that for travel, typically what happens, there's a lot of traffic through OTAs, but then... Yes. You know, say you open a new a new uh, market completely. How do you get people to you know rent cars from you? Um, so we have a couple of channels. Uh, the first is that we are pushing on the digital front. Um, so I think in terms of car rental, the international players like Hertz, Avis, Eurocar, we have pretty good uh, digital offerings. We are still way behind hotels and airlines, mm. but. That means that there's a lot of room to get better. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, we are the only ones with any kind of a digital offering compared to the really traditional mm. uh, localized car rental players. Yeah. Um, so because it is a business where you're, you're doing international travel, you've got to market to you know, 100 over countries worldwide to bring customers who are, yes. are going to rent from you in Malaysia or in mm. Thailand. And that's where the Europe Car Network helps us. We have a website, we have a mobile app, we have a social media presence, and we've actually seen the mobile app exploding. Mm. Um, th that is by far and large the fastest growing mm. uh, booking method or booking channel that we have. Essentially, there's a strong product market fit, yes. right? You just got to find the right places to put it, which 
Yes. Traditionally, that would be at an airport. Yes. Right. So you sit at an airport, and no matter what you do, like without marketing, you're probably going to get rentals, yes. right? Yes. But I guess these days, you know, you want to capture people before they even come to the country. Yes. Right. And you want to brand them and know the whole journey. Yes. Which, like, then you build an app, Correct. natural product market fit. It's just going to work. Yes. Right. Um, yes. I guess that means you don't spend as a percentage of your revenue, probably not a huge amount for marketing, right? No. Um, so we actually uh, try to go through direct channels. Uh, yeah. So we work a lot with OTAs, uh, Expedia, Skyscanner. Mm players like this where they actually help us to drive a lot of bookings and they spend a lot of marketing yeah, right that's so true we just give them a commission and let them spend on google ads so you lean on to the other networks which yes. then spreads to other people which naturally there's a product market fit then they will just rent yes you, right um and if say you open a new country or say like in bangkok it's yeah. how many people do you need to kind of run operations to make it work um when we started we had about I think we started with 17 people. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that, you know, 10 to 15 is pretty much the minimum for you to get things started. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is pretty lean, actually, if you think yes. about it, right? So there's, there's a pretty good, um, I guess because the, the, the problem is big enough that it scales nicely, right? Yes, yeah. yes. And then uh, what was the most surprising thing running Europe Card that you learned that you didn't expect? Um, I think something that, that I... I realized when I started running Europe Car is that because Europe Car is the first project I had where I basically had to answer for it you know mm -hmm. if it goes down there's no one to look at but <laughs> yeah. me yeah. so I realized that you know when I'm the one who has to make the decisions it, it's a lot tougher yeah. so earlier we spoke about having a champion yeah. so a lot of times I would give my ideas to him and if she hits the fan, I'll be like, I'll, I'll point at him. He'll hmm. point at me, but you know, he's the one in the seat. <laughs> yeah, correct. So when it came to Europe car, uh, I managed to, to find a team, uh, there's four of us, who, and we work really well together and hmm. we actually support each other really well. I think without a team, if it was a solo effort, I would probably have failed. Hmm. Uh, I just wouldn't have the confidence or the conviction to make you know, certain decisions, especially risky decisions. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the team backing me up, number one, I know that if shit hits the fan, they will not up and leave. Yeah. They will, you know, they will dig in. Yeah. They'll work with me to fix shit, right? Yeah. Um, and number two, they would always be there to bounce ideas off. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you... So, I mean, I guess Europe Car is a brand, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not like a sexy name like uh, Uber. No. Right. Yes. <laughs> so how, how do you go about <laughs> attracting talent and how do you decide who's going to stick with you through that thick and thin? Um, so, yeah, that was an issue early on. Um, you know, a lot of people, they want to join Grab. They yes. want to join Uber. Still. Yes, <laughs> still, right? Uh, nobody wants to join an old stodgy business that's asset heavy. So we actually did start to take measures like we renovated. Or when, after I took over, I renovated our office in Bangkok mm. um, or moved to a new office. And even after we bought the Malaysia operation last year or two years ago, uh, I renovated the office in Malaysia too to make it uh, look a bit more like, say, uh, Uber office. Nicer or, office. Yeah, yeah. A, a nicer office, something yeah. where it's not the old school cubicles. Yeah. It's more of an open plan. There are lounge areas. There's a, uh, pen, there's a cafeteria area. Yeah. Uh, we, we have coffee. We have cappuccinos. Yeah. So, and when people come for interviews, it's much easier to recruit young, mm -hmm. uh, fresh grads who are talented, who graduated overseas, that kind of thing. Yeah. But it is something that has been or was an, an issue, uh, still continues to be. Uh, we have very high turnover mm. in, in our staff. Um, a, a lot of people, they, 
they want to do interesting things all the time. Right. Mm. But we are in a business that is so old school that it's basically doing the same things yeah. again and again. Well, I think no matter what you do, even if it's like a sexy tech startup, like yeah. driver operations, that, yeah. that, is not, <laughs> that is not fun. But right. like, yes. you know, if you're on that team, you're literally every day on the streets trying to get more drivers yes. for the marketplace, yes. right? So, I mean, I think, you know, it's, I guess you're right. There's going to be a natural churn. Yes. Um, so I guess trying to attract more young talent, but it's, it's yeah, it's very hard to keep them there, yes. especially when it is a, a same process over and over and over again. Yes. Is there any tricks that you do to keep them longer then? Or? Um, so I, I think when, so me and my team, we are all quite young or mm -hmm. relatively young. We are, when we first over Europe Car, we are late 20s, early 30s. And so we actually made a, a, a real effort to bring down the average age mm. of the team. And now I would say maybe 90% of all Europe Car staff are age 35 and below. Mm -hmm. And you know, less than 5% are over the age of 40, 45. Um, yeah. that, so that meant that even things like company trips, we were able to, you know, rather than doing sightseeing, we would play paintball. Yeah. We would do wipeout. Uh, yeah. We would do, you know, obstacle courses on water, yeah. uh, water theme parks, things like that. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is, especially at a small team, like around 10 to 15 people, I think um, culture is what's going to make it sticky, mm -hmm. right? And of course, I think there's opportunities. If the business keeps growing, you know, you got to sell that vision to them. Yes. Um, but, you know, if it's going to be one or two years doing the same thing, you know, I think it really comes down to how well you treat them, Correct. you know, if they get along with other people and it makes yes. it sticky for them. Right? Yes. So, um, software is eating the world, right? Yes. So that's, that's what uh, I think Mark Andreessen said. Yes. Right. And so for the past two decades, we see that every VC, every investor doesn't yes. want to touch heavy asset businesses. Why, why do you think this is the case? Um, I think it's just so much easier to scale up an asset-like business. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the problem with, with heavy asset is that you've got to raise financing either via debt or via equity. Um, if you do it by equity, the dilution ends up being huge um, and that is not good for any mm -hmm. investor. Yeah. Um, if you do it by debt, you've got to have the faith of the banks or of the bond markets and it's difficult without a track record. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a catch-22. Uh, most software startups are started by really young people who just haven't been in the market long enough to yeah. have that track record. True. But I guess what you guys are seeing is the exact opposite. So I guess this has been happening for a long time. And even still today, people still prefer very much software, right? There's a nice yes. multiplier effect. There's a lot of leverage, right? Yes. Um, it could scale nicely, you know, economies of scale. And then, but you guys, I guess that leaves, you know, after there's, there's very few opportunities people think these days in software, you know, it goes from SaaS to B2C, you know, e-commerce, yep. uh, C2C, B2C, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, but I guess that left a huge opportunity what you guys are seeing, right? Yes. Um, so for us, we, we realized that everyone wants to be asset light, but most businesses would still require assets of some kind. Um, if you look at Uber, yes, they, you know, so-called, they don't want to own any cars, but you still need a car to move the people around. Correct. Yeah. Right. And, at the, at, and when, when, I guess, rideshare was scaling up, yeah. right? I think what people don't realize for Asia, a car rent, like people who own the cars in many of the Southeast Asian countries, it's very fragmented. Yes. Right. So um, not every person, I guess, if you're the average person in like the countryside, you're not necessarily going to have a car. Correct. Right. Yeah. Unless you're in the major city and you have a white collar job. Correct. 
right? But that puts a limit on the total car population. And I guess what was really interesting is that I guess you know companies like Europe Car would actually rent out to Grab, right? Yes. So we had quite a lot of people, um, you know, who are coming from villages where they used to drive motorbikes, yeah. uh, and they would want to drive for Grab as a great job opportunity. So they would end up renting. Uh, cars from us on a monthly basis mm -hmm. and drive for Uber, drive for Grab, drive for Gojek, yeah. whoever else is in the market. So part part of that business, uh, I guess, Rideshare helped the infrastructure side of owning, like since you're a car owner, yes. asset heavy, yes. you guys could really benefit from taking some of that money off the table for yourself. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So how can these types of businesses, you know, if you're very asset heavy, how can you introduce technology and to improve the businesses? Um, so in our case, uh, there are things like telematics that would actually allow us to track our vehicles. Um, and we actually want to look towards a lot of traditional sectors. So when it comes to telematics, are we able to partner with insurance companies? Yeah. Um, so this is something that's done in the US where if you drive safely, then theoretically your insurance premium will come down. Yeah. You know, if you drive low mileage, it should come down. But in Malaysia, we don't have any of these things. Mm -hmm. in, in Asia, insurance premiums are flat rate. Mm -hmm. uh, they are just based on a you know, market average statistic, which is just, you know, this is- Doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. um, in this day and age, a lot of these guys would have to adapt to. Yeah. And if we are able to install GPS trackers on our vehicles, then we are able to feed back this information to the insurance company and look for cost savings. Yeah. yeah. Even though you're an asset-heavy business and it may be not initially sexy for like a VC, there, there is room for innovation. Yes. And I think, you know, it could, I think, you know, we're, we're moving to the part where software just escaped the real world, the physical world, yes. right? So, yes. you know, and, and the way things will probably be shaping up in the future is that you will need people involved in this space. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And that's the, the opportunity you're attacking. And I guess brings us to the next section because covid and the lockdown essentially brought your yep. business down to zero, right? Yes. Literally zero revenue. Literally zero revenue. Zero yes. travel, yep. right? So Asia went full lockdown. Yep. And I guess in that moment, I guess it's uh, it's terrible. Yep. But it's also, I guess there's a silver lining, right? Yes. You guys saw an opportunity um, where you wanted to pivot the business. So how, what was the pivot and how did um, that come about? So traditionally, we are a B2C operator. Yeah. Uh, when you fly to a new country, or when you fly to Kota Kinabalu, or you fly to Penang, you rent a car from us. But we realized that during the lockdown, obviously everyone is staying at home, but there are certain businesses that continue to operate, uh, especially essential services. Yeah. And one of the essential services was logistics. Mm -hmm. uh, logistics is something, you know, people got to eat, they got to have food deliveries, they got to have, um, you know, medical supplies. So we wanted to pivot towards being a B2B uh, business but still within the realm of cars or vehicles. And that's where we had the idea of doing rental and leasing of vans and trucks. Mm -hmm. So this is something that exists in the US and in Europe. Uh, there are companies like U-Haul, where you can literally rent your own truck and drive cross country, yeah. you know, move house. But in Malaysia, uh, the mindset has still been very traditional. Uh, we, a lot of the SMEs are still considered so-called Chinaman businesses, where they want to own the assets, mm -hmm. but Owning assets is always a restriction when you want to scale up. Correct. Um, not everyone has the financial firepower to, to scale up. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we want to st step in to help a lot of these SMEs to, to scale without having to worry about capital outlay, without having to worry about capex uh, and, and these issues. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is we want to rent and lease uh, a, a van, like a Toyota Hiace van or mm -hmm. one ton, three ton, 
truck or lorry to these SMEs or even to larger corporates uh, so that they can continue running their business. And you guys essentially came to this conclusion because you started to look around uh, and the market's very fragmented. Yes. And surprisingly, no one is serving up a solution for this. Correct. Right? Yes. Uh, so I guess if anyone out there knows of a company like who owns a ton of fleets of trucks and are renting them out, you know, probably, probably we could get in touch with you. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if, okay, this is a, a quick, you know, commercial break, but if anyone would like to lease a truck, you know, they can always come and look for me. Yeah. Uh, if they have a, a, a business venture, whether it's a bakery, whether it's selling durians, and you know, they, they can't get a, a loan to buy a truck or they, they are not sure they want to commit to buying a truck until they have uh, MVP, until they have product validation, um, and they just want to, to test, yeah. then yeah, sure, by all means, look for me, look for Europecar. Yeah, how can they reach you? Uh, you can always reach us via email, website, call, just Google us, Europe it car. will be the first result. Yeah, yes. Europe car. Yeah. Um, and you also have a commission scheme too. Yes, we do. So um, one thing that we realized during, the, during the whole coronavirus situation is a lot of people are losing their jobs. Um, so what we did is that we, we developed a, a commission scheme that allows freelance salespeople um, to help us to sell. Mm. And if they know friends or family who have small businesses or who are in logistics, who want to lease a truck, for every truck uh, or van that they, they introduce to us, we pay them a commission. And recently you had your first commission payout, right? Yes, we did. Um, so the demand has been better than we expected. Yeah. And, you know, during co the whole COVID, delivery of the truck has been more than an issue. Yeah. But there has been quite a lot of inquiries, quite a lot of interest. So we, we have already paid out the first couple of commissions. And Which is quite, quite a lot, right? Yes. Um, so the commissions yeah, for, for a small size deal can, would be in a few thousand. For a larger deal, it can stretch up into tens of thousands. Or if you sign on a large logistics corporate, it can be in the hundreds of thousands. So it's a good chance for someone to make some quick money if they know how to connect you to the right person. Yes. Right? So, yes. Um, so how should an entrepreneur actually think about navigating a pivot? When, when is the right time and how do you know this is the right move instead of doubling down on your core business? Uh, I'm not sure if I, I can give you a fair answer. We, we decided to pivot because we were in such deep shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, by, by, by necessity. No, yes, by no, necessity. No choice. So it, it wasn't really like a... We, we've been talking about trucks for ages, but we've always been too busy, too lazy. We, we never did it until we had to. Mm. So I wouldn't say that, you know, there's a, there's a good time, but, you know, when you're about to die, you know, anything goes. Um, so I guess <laughs> this will be the perfect case study for next time we, we see you on the show to see how you guys do and then maybe next year or so. Yeah, true. I yeah. mean, like you asked, you know, whether, whether we know whether this is the right move. Yeah. I have no idea. And I guess that's part of being uh, an entrepreneur. Even though this is a you know, traditional business that was taken away, yeah. you become an entrepreneur by starting it a lot of uncertainty. Yes. And you're acting pretty much how any other entrepreneur would, right? I hope so. I just hope they're successful. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I guess it's a good place to, to end the conversation. So I guess final plugs. I think Europe Car is always hiring, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the right profile? Um, so we're always looking for young, uh, driven people. Uh, so we are a very, very small team. Uh, even in Malaysia, we have about what less than 20 people in the office. In Thailand, we only have about 40. Uh, we like young uh, people. Even fresh grads are fine. And people who don't mind getting their hands dirty. Mm -hmm. So... We are not a MNC corporate where you would have a very distinct job role. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be rotation. Um, you know, our IT guys end up doing sales. You yeah. know, everyone has to pitch in. It's more of a team effort. 
So very entrepreneurial type profile, generalist, yes. I guess you're looking for. Yes. Uh, any specific number of headcount or? Um, we're always hiring. Uh, our, our turnover is there. Uh, okay. Yeah. So because we look for these kind of people, um, so one of our staff left to, to open up their own like pizza kiosk. Oh, nice. Yeah. A, a lot of our, our guys end up going yeah. out there to do their own business. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we do have churn and we're always looking for talented mm -hmm. people. I, I will personally vouch for Kevin, one of the smartest guys I know and uh, definitely could learn a lot working with him. Um, so I guess the other plug would be, you know, the commission for the, yes. the new pivot for uh, truck rental business, van rental business, right? Yes. And I guess the last thing would be, you know, any business who probably needs trucks or rentals. Mm -hmm. Okay, Kevin, thank you for your time and being on the show. Yep, thanks, thanks, Alex. All right. uh, really appreciate it. Yep. Hey, listeners, thanks to listening for another exciting episode of EOA. As usual, please share this with your friends and family and network or on social media if you found it valuable. Feedback is always welcome. Please go to entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcast, or you can always email us at hello at entrepreneursofasia.com. If you're considering and joining a family business or you are part of one, don't forget, you can always take some time off to work outside, get experience first, and then join later. As Kevin mentions, he kind of regretted not doing this before he joined the family business. Instead, he had to pay his dues, keep his head down, and prove himself before he was able to convince the right stakeholders he could go out on his own. And to do that, you need the right mindset and attitude. Within a corporate or a family business, to jump ahead, you need to take risks before moving forward. However, with the family dynamic and complexity that comes along with it, it is a process that will take time. So find yourself that champion if you're in this situation. The same applies in a corporate setting. However, this does not prevent you from innovating. Entrepreneurship is often about innovating. Every time I meet Kevin and chat with him, he's always exploring new technologies. And we talk about the, the challenges he faced, which are often the same types of challenges I face when scaling a technology-driven startup. In terms of Europe Car, despite it seeming like an old, stodgy business, it is hugely poised to growth, as the middle class will continue to grow in Asia in the coming years. Travel has fundamentally changed, and travel definitely will not go away, but it will be different. Entrepreneurs and investors should also be keen to look in areas they usually wouldn't expect. The perfect example is Kevin taking advantage of asset-heavy businesses. We are at a point in time where technology is spilling into everything and coveting one area will leave room for others to take advantage of. If anyone's also working in telematics and using data to drive down insurance premiums, definitely reach out to Kevin. There's definitely a huge area of growth and innovation for insurance and car rentals together. As usual, I look forward to seeing you back here next week.